Hello and good morning. Today I'm here to host today's discussion along with two of my friends and members of Work To Be Well's National Student Advisory Council. I am Dominic Brown, a recent graduate of Work To Be Well's National Student Advisory Council and the former education team lead. Hi, I'm Ash, current member of Work To Be Well and co-team lead for the National Student Advisory Council's access team. And I'm Kiana Victor, like Ash, a current member of Works Be Well, and this year will be leading the, the activation team. And here with us are the Defensive Line co-founders, Chris and Martha Thomas. We also have Dr. Lauren Har Harper, psychologist and program manager of Wellness with Providence Health and Services. So thank so let's just thank them for a second for joining us for our important talk about minority mental health and suicide prevention. Now let's give all our guests an opportunity to introduce themselves and why they are passionate about discussing the topic in front of us. Dr. Harper, would you like to go first? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you all for having me. I'm Lauren Harper. Um, I work for Providence, the Oregon region. And like they said, I'm a psychologist by training, licensed here in the state of Oregon. Um, and I'm a program manager of wellness, which means I focus right now on working with our employees or as Providence, um, we call our employees caregivers and supporting our caregivers with all things wellness, making sure they know about all of our wellness resources and getting them connected as they need it. Um, and I'm super excited to be here and really passionate about this topic. Um, I actually went into psychology to work with um, Black people specifically around Black mental health. Um, and I'm from the South originally, from Georgia. And so there's tons of history around, um, even as we're talking about today, intergenerational trauma around mental health and stigma around mental health. So that was a really big um, encouragement for me to become a psychologist. So I'm excited to be here to talk with y'all. My name is Martha Thomas, um, and I'm one of the co-founders of the Defensive Line. Um, we became passionate about mental health when we lost our daughter, Ella, to suicide in January of 2018. Um, I've also been a teacher uh, in a school district where our student population is about 70% um, young people of color. Um, and just have seen so much of uh, what can impact pe uh, children and not make them feel safe in the classroom. Um, and certainly our daughter's death has just propelled us into this world. Uh, my name is Chris Thomas. I am one of the co-founders of the Defensive Line along with our son Solomon and our executive director, Ray Horst. And uh, we just wanted to make sure that we're able to help others not go through the pain that we went through. And growing up in an African-American family, the lack of discussions about mental health and suicide prevention uh, and how to deal with uh, whole health uh, was not a, a big topic. So we want to make sure that we're sharing that with others so they don't go through the same type of pain that we've gone through. Wow. <clears throat> wow. What a powerful story from both of you. Thank you for sharing and being so open and honest. We appreciate you all being here and are eager to get into it. And as a reminder, the information provided during this event is for educational purposes only. It is not intended, nor is it implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice. I'll kick off the questions for this morning and let's cover some basic vocabulary that often come up in relation to minority mental health. What is racism versus structural racism and how does this impact children from a young age? 
So I think racism is generally defined as discrimination directed against people on the basis of their membership in a particular racial or ethnic group, um, typically one that is a minority. Structural racism is kind of taking the idea of the discrimination and seeing it embedded in like the regulations of a society. Um, it's typically seen as people in power going against minorities in areas like education or healthcare or employment even, and a lot more than that. And it, it impacts everyone, and ch especially children from a young age because they're often treated as less than and ever since they can comprehend status it takes a negative toll on their mental health seeing themselves and the people around them being treated so badly because of racism they often develop trauma after they've been treated that way for so long and it kind of begs the question of how does intergenerational trauma affect individuals I agree, Ash. I definitely think that it affects children like strongly. And my definition of structural racism, I feel like it's a little bit different, but also similar. I feel like structural racism is things that are already, racism that's already established in society. It's already um, encouraged in society. And while it's there and it's, some, it's a problem in this um, country or society or world, it's not really addressed because it's so normalized. While I feel like, um, and then racism is more of a broad term. It can be disencouraged, it can be encouraged, it can be encouraged, but it's more the broader perception of what structural racism is. It's, I feel like structural racism goes into the definition of a racism, but it's something entirely different. And I feel like this impacts children because a lot of kids are, doesn't know things that are different today. And while structural racism is already established in schools, um, it creates disparities among individuals. It's something that kids don't think is a problem. So they grow up thinking that it's normalized when it's not, and it's something that should be um, disencouraged and something that should be changed. So I'm curious, what is and how does intergenerational trauma affect individuals? I can speak toward that, um, if I may. So can you all hear me okay? Okay. Okay, perfect. Uh, yes. So intergenerational trauma um, definitely like as you all were talking about and thinking about structural racism, kind of how does that impact then further generations, right? Um, and so really it's the impact lasting between generations um, and further impacting them as time goes, even though the effects of that may, as you say, uh, become normalized or become um, a, a appearing not as impactful, but still very impactful. So um, some big things that we hear about are like 
the housing market, right, um, and redlining in the past and the families for generations and generations still having disparities between um, different families of communities and ethnicities um, not being able to obtain housing because of those kind of historical um, barriers. And you mentioned schools as well. So we see this throughout um, all of our kind of larger structures in our systems. Um, and those things become passed down. I think we were also saying this earlier as well, is because families may not always even discuss some of how these things impact them or even things that happen within families, such as trauma, um, may not discuss how that impacts each other. And then some of those um, emotional ways of coping with things are passed down, um, such as maybe substance use disorders, right, of how people cope with certain things uh, when it's maybe more in response to trauma in the past and not necessarily um, just some what someone's wanting to do, right? Um, so those things are often, I think in our younger generations now, especially folks, we have more access to information, um, to resources and support. There's more conversations around these, um, these concerns happening like in schools. And so folks have more space to talk about this. And so we're getting to kind of illuminate that more um, these days as well. Uh, if I could just add one thing, Dominic, uh, Dr. Harper, excellent uh, description of what's going on with intergenerational uh, trauma. I also think about it as it relates to life expectancy. You think of all the stress that the African Americans go through, whether it's redlining, whether it's microaggressions, macroaggressions, whether it's you know poor diet, you know uh, being incarcerated earlier or, or disproportionately. You know, I think I'm 61 years old as an African American male. I'm expected to live to the age of 74. My Asian counterparts expect to live to 85. I only have 12 years. They're going to have 20, 23. So it's that intergenerational stress, the trauma, that's day-to-day, -day, you know, wearing down on people like myself. And uh, it just has a toll, even on our life expectancy as well. But I thought that was an excellent comment, Dr. Hart. And I definitely agree with you, Chris. I feel like a lot of the time we hear about, when we talk about racism, when we talk about um, minorities, we talk about how we also um, perceive and we also hear things that targeted towards us that um, not everyone sees similar. But, and then when we talk about this, we also talk about microaggression. So I was wondering, Dominic, what is microaggression anyway? I feel like a lot of people don't really know what it is, but and could learn a lot and it don't know about the intersections of it from in mental health. So if you can answer what is microaggression and also how can could this prevent a young person from seeking mental health support? That's a great question. And I, I want to start off by busting a myth before I even define it, um, because the word micro within the term microaggressions might throw people off because it might be, you know, interpreted to be just this little sort of jab that isn't really, you know, it doesn't really affect an individual a whole lot, um, which is absolutely not true. And so I think that the term micro within microaggression throws off a lot of people because it's like, oh, microaggressions are just something that we all have to live with. Oh, it's just something that happens within society that you just have to deal with, which is not true. And we should never just be, you know, allowing for microaggressions to continue in the workplace, in schools, anywhere. And so a microaggression is defined as the everyday subtle intentional and oftentimes, oftentimes unintentional interactions or behaviors that communicate a sort of bias toward historically marginalized groups. 
and microaggressions are inherently divisive and they can belittle people to the point that seeking care is not an option. These little comments that you see in the workplace, little comments you see in um, in schools, and it doesn't even have to be def like defined to just a comment. It could also be like behavior. It can also be physical. Um, when you belittle someone and when you, you know, divide them and you isolate them, they're less likely to seek care. I mean, that's just the sort of the expected reaction to something that divides someone and isolates them. And so I think it's important to realize that microaggressions um, are not micro and they have serious consequences to the people that they are targeted towards. Dominic, if I could just add on to that real quick. I mean, you're right. It's, it's not just a subtle thing sometimes. Like our daughter, Ella, who was obviously biracial, a beautiful athletic, um, studious young lady. And there were many times she was told, oh, you look good for a black girl. Uh, I mean, to hear that almost on a daily basis, and as you mentioned, they're subtle. And there was a study done that said that five point, the average black male, uh, black uh, uh, youth goes through 5.2 microaggressions a day. I mean, that adds up. And so, but those little comments, I mean, just have a toll on your psyche, on your ego, on your health. Uh, do I fit? Do I belong? So I thought it was an excellent uh, description and explanation, Dominic. Thank you very much. I could um, also was thinking too, I appreciate what you said, and I was thinking that as well. Uh, but my thought always when I think about a microaggression is if I have to pause after someone has said something and think, hmm, what did you mean by that? Or what does that mean? You know, if you have to have that type of questioning response, uh, more often than not, doesn't necessarily exactly mean it was a microaggression, but it is maybe possible. It might've fallen into that category. Um, and so, and totally agree, right? It's subtle. Um, and it oftentimes maybe even come, I think part of the definition talks about is coming from well-meaning people, right? Or people who don't maybe aren't giving that intention of being harmful. And that I think is what cuts even deeper, right? Because you're expecting that someone is well-meaning or this particular person maybe is well-meaning and they say something that makes you question what they mean and then makes you question yourself, just as Chris said, and, and kind of spirals, I think, into that cloud around um, what, what exactly is happening here. And uh, I think there was a question, Kiana, you mentioned about how does that intersect then with mental health and maybe even with seeking care? Well, unfortunately, there is even research that shows that there have been microaggressions that are um, committed or uh, between folks even in counseling or in therapy, right? Because even as mental health professionals, we are still people and humans. And so that I think can add as well to some of that questioning around, you know, what did you mean by that? Or do you even understand me? Are you, are you trying to understand me? Or, you know, kind of what's happening and potentially maybe add to some of that stigma. And so it's really important for us as um, mental health professionals, all mental health professionals and thinking about what we say and who we are and what we bring to our spaces so that we can uh, really contribute to continue to breaking down that stigma for folks accessing care. And just adding on just really quick, because I just wanted to add on to something. When you said well-being, like well-meaning people, I definitely agree because I feel like it is assumption that microaggressions are only seen outside of the minority. And I feel like that's so untrue because when you look at stigma in minority community in minorities, it's built on microaggressions. Especially in the black community, a lot of the time I hear is you have to be strong. You have to, you're Black, so you are challenged and you can't really have time to prioritize your mental, your mental health. Mm -hmm. And 
this is something that is spread and encouraged around the community. And it's like, this is a microaggression. This is something that's rooted in racism. So I definitely agree with what you said. They're also really prevalent in the classroom um, amongst students and amongst um, teachers to their students. So uh, for instance, I had some students who were asking a student from another country or his family was from another country, can you even spell your own last name? You know, and, and just really trying to um, question him about his name, which certainly is not okay, but we in turn can give people micro affirmations. When those microaggressions happen and we see them, um, how can we turn them around and um, sit down at, for this student, I sat down and I asked him about his last name and, and how, where did his last name come from? And how did, mm -hmm. it turned out that his last name was a combination of three different generations of grandparents. And that's what he said we do in our culture, which I didn't know. And so um, we were able to teach the class and kind of turn turn that uh, very, what had become a very hostile environment for him into something where he could show pride in who he was. Mm. Mm. All of that was very well said. And I really appreciated that, that story it really just, it speaks to you. It's very, um, it's a very good example of everything that we're talking about. And that being said, I kind of want to um, bring up what is the definition of implicit bias? Mm -hmm. How do you define that? So those biases that we all have that are unintentional, it doesn't mean that they don't hurt, but that they're unintentional. For instance, it could be around age, assuming that, oh, you know, here, here come the old people. They're technologically <laughs> challenged. Wait, maybe that one's true. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, something around names or um, assuming that all mental health uh, issues look the same in all cultures. So maybe, um, you know, we're assuming that... Um, all, everyone who's depressed is quiet and sad, where that may be totally the opposite. Or, or someone who has experienced some trauma is going to withdraw instead of be louder and more vocal. Mm -hmm. So those implicit biases that we um, all put on each other um, and being, uh, being aware of those and how they affect um, each other. And they can certainly like, by implicit bias around names, if you can't pronounce a student's name um, and you don't work on it, how does that start to make them feel? They don't feel safe in your classroom. They don't feel safe around you. They're not going to tell you when they're having a hard time or they don't get something that you're trying to teach them. I mean, you, you bring up such a good point when you say that just because it might be unintentional doesn't mean it's not going to affect an individual. And I think that that is such an important, you know, it's such an important idea to think about because implicit bias can end in deadly situations perpetuated against black and brown communities. Mm. I mean, think about it, an individual in power, like a law enforcement official who mm. has an implicit bias 
towards a black or brown individual might be more likely to use deadly uh, lethal force against that individual because they have this preconceived notion about what a black and brown person is or if they're inherently you know criminal or something like that these these implicit biases that they hold can have deadly repercussions and so i think it's it's so important to address implicit bias at a young age in the classroom because that's where we learn anyways that's where we learn about math that's where we learn about science why shouldn't we learn about how to you know unroot our implicit bias and treat people of color the same that we would treat anyone else and why can't we learn you know how to uphold equity within the classroom and i think that at my school at least um we've had trainings about preventing you know implicit bias and, and preventing it from interfering within our life and and i think that was so impactful especially for people who don't have to deal with implicit bias and microaggressions and racism on a daily basis, learning that the things that they can say and the way that they can act can actually affect someone in really serious ways. And so I'm so glad that we're having this discussion because implicit bias and racism and microaggressions can lead to, to death. And that's something that we have to acknowledge and something that we have to prevent. Yes. If I may say, I'm I'm really glad you said that um, because when you think about how do we then, what do we do about implicit bias? Um, I love part of what you said is, you know, we should be teaching this in school and starting early. I, I think another piece of this, remember, it's everyone's responsibility, right? It's everyone's responsibility to be uh, what they say is an active bystander or maybe even an upstander. You may hear those terms, um, which simply means if you notice something has happened, either, you know, to someone else or maybe sometimes for yourself, you may not feel as comfortable kind of saying something in the moment until you might empathize with understanding what that feels like if someone is in a position where you notice something has been said toward them, maybe, or, the, or some kind of behavior toward them. And being an active bystander or an upstander is challenging that in the moment. There's kind of multiple ways you can go about it, but the key points are doing something about that in the moment, right? Like not leaving that person there by themselves to fend um, in those situations, because those are some of the only ways if we're not bringing those things to the forefront and talking about those things out loud, we're not going to improve any of these biases, right? These things start at home and in young ages, and they're so normalized in our day-to-day lives and in our communities that if we don't say these things, if we don't bring them up, we don't even know where to start. So I appreciate that you were talking about us all kind of having a role in that. And you know, it plays out, you know, unfortunately within the education system, as well as the criminal justice system, these biases, whether it's the fact that, you know, you get three, on average, three days, three, three, or three police killings of black men each day. Uh, and and then also the piece that you think about suspensions amongst black females and black males is three to six times more higher for them to be suspended or expelled uh, in school uh, for doing the same behavior of someone, of one of their counterparts. And then, you know, average uh, African-American youth is 16 times more likely to be, be tried as an adult. I mean, those are biases that are within our criminal justice system, our education system. And as Dr. Harper and Dominic mentioned, if we don't, and Martha mentioned, if we don't identify and root that out, we're going to continue down this pattern of, you know, the school to pipeline prison, uh, you know, of earlier deaths amongst kids of color. Uh, and we've got to address it, identify it. And as Martha mentioned, all of us have bias. It's just how we deal with that bias is the most important piece. Work to be well has a few BIPOC-centered 
curricula. Um, but the one that I'd like to talk about today is the intersectionality of race and mental health, which is one that me and Kiana had the pleasure and opportunity to work on. Kiana, would you like to give some insight into what that process was like? Most definitely. I, um, so basically during last year, we worked on race and intersectionality in mental health, Dominic and I. And one of the ways that we worked on it was to provide an inside lens and in what it's like to be a person of color and um, can look for mental health treatment and ways that what we've been seeing in our community and how it has impacted mental health. So for me, I go to a predominantly black institution where mental health is scarce is a scarce resource at our school. Um, we don't really, we don't have a psychologist. We share it with three schools and it's hard. So going into the curriculum, we looked at and we gave an insight lens on what are the disadvantages for, for being a minority and how does that affect mental health access and treatment? It also kind of branched into healthcare and the disparities that uh, lines in healthcare and, and healthcare access being a BIPOC mental health, being in the BIPOC community. Um, also, Dominic and I made personal vignettes, which is basically personal stories that, um, personal examples of race intersecting into mental health that we made up. But I actually had the privilege to take it into my community. And all that I, all that I gave to Works Me Well was made by my friends, by members of the community, by Indians, Latinos, Asian Americans. And it really showed the problems that face the community, but also showed how much mental health is different being a minority. Yeah, Kiana, I mean, honestly, I can't even say it better. It was such a wonderful process being able to work with you because um, ever since I started here at Work To Be Well, Kiana's kind of been my bestie um, at Work To Be Well. And so it was great to be able to talk with her and and talk about, you know, our own experiences with racism. And 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 this, this curriculum is so great. It, it covers microaggressions. It covers ACEs. It covers conversations in classrooms. It covers so many different topics, so many different factors that can affect the mental health of an individual who is of the BIPOC community and we have vignettes and we have, or however, however you pronounce it, I'm not sure. And we have, we even have one for uh, people who are gender non-binary um, because this is a conversation that affects people from all walks of life. And so we wanted to make it as, inc as inclusive as possible. And so, yeah, I was so honored to be able to work with Kiana. Um, Cause she's my bestie and it was a great conversation and a great piece of curriculum and it's the first of three. And so we are very excited to see where this takes us. And Dominic, I'm just gonna add, I feel like Work To Be Well definitely has showed us, um, you too, Ash, I feel like Work To Be Well showed us how much mental health is perceived differently to us. I feel like when going into Work To Be Well, I looked at others and I was just like, wow, you know, the way they talk about mental health is more open, it's more relaxed, it's more accepting. And I feel like when we go and we talk about minority and BIPOC mental health, it's two different subjects, you know? And just being involved in something like this was really cool because it showed the idealism of what I want mental health to look like in my community and other communities. I don't know about how you feel about that, Dominic, but just, the perception of what mental health should be in BIPOC communities and ways to try to um, alleviate it, I guess. And 
I hope it can go far and I hope it can touch multiple communities, but just making sure that's the first step in Providence, um, Providence work to solve mental health disparities and mental health in BIPOC communities and among youth. I feel like one thing that we don't really know except is that we already had a generation that um, suffered from mental health decline in America and the next generation is going to follow unless we do something about it. And this is just one of the many ways to solve that. And um, on that, so again, just reiterate, reiterate, really, I forgot to say, repeating what Dominic said, the curriculum is just one out of three and I will also be working on it. I think Ash is a new member of our team who will be also working on it and it will be available in early August. Just want to applaud you all as well for that work. I mean, truly, it's really phenomenal to be involved um, and have and be using your voice and in such a way. Um, you all mentioned this earlier. It does need to start early, right? Like we need to kind of have conversations and we need to have conversations, I think, from folks who are considered experts or people who have been like studying things for a long time that's important but it's also important to talk to our peers to talk to people like directly kind of next to us because we all have such wonderful rich um, knowledge about our own experiences that we bring so i love that you all are being able to use that in that way now you, you hit the nail on the head dr harper i mean talking about it i mean that just goes a long way of destigmatizing some of the myths that are out there of having a normalized conversation, you know, of talking about the importance of whole health, not just physical, not just mental, but both. And that whole mental hygiene element of just something you do two or three times a day. And whether it's, you know, working on it through journaling, through, you know, talking about it, through therapy, through counseling, through meditation, just the fact that these young people are talking about it, to me, gives me courage and hope because we're not gonna stigmatize it. We're not gonna put it in the closet. We're gonna realize that you gotta make this an everyday conversation multiple times during the day. Well, and I think it's also important to understand that you all, young people, have a better uh, mental health vocabulary than the rest of us. Mm -hmm. You know, even our son who's 27, who was about to be 27, will, will say, you know, Man, when I talk to younger kids, they're so well-versed in, in what's going on and they've got the vocabulary, they've got their language, but do the people that they need to talk to have it? Exactly. Yeah, I think all of that was very well put. Um, we definitely do need to talk about it more and I think that's becoming a lot more prevalent in young audiences and communities and <laughs> I see Dominic over there just giving himself credit as he should because everyone here has done absolutely amazing work and I'm so glad to be working with all of you. Um, speaking of which, Work to Be Well and the Defensive Line collaborated on a suicide prevention workshop for educators and coaches. Thanks to our friend, Dr. Eleanor Gil Kashawabra. I hope I said that right. How's her body? This workshop brings focus to microaggressions and implicit bias, what we have been talking about, and the relationship that these things have on mental health and suicide prevention. 
And as mentioned before, the curriculum will be available for download at worktobewell.org at the beginning of next month, August 2022. If I could make a couple of comments. Um, Ash yeah. just touched on the prevention um, workshop. So I was wondering, can you share more about the workshop um, since I don't really know about it and the BIPOC curriculum that caters to educators and coaches? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, I'm gonna ask you to pull up a slide um, and I'm not gonna talk through all the numbers. It's the first slide uh, that talks about, um, uh, go one more, there we go. Uh, and I think um, this is all about uh, how we work together with Providence, Work to Be Well and Dr. Gil Kashirvara. Uh, because as you think about all the things we've talked about already this morning, uh, we talked about trauma, we talked about racism, we talked about microaggressions, unconscious implicit bias. And Dominic made a really good point. This has an impact on people of color as it relates to unfortunately dying by suicide. And a couple of key things I think are important to note out, once again, I'm not gonna read every slide, uh, piece of data. On the average week, they're under the age of 24, there are 119 people who are dying by suicide each week. Now, one of the things that the defensive line did in February, we did a, a testimony in front of Congress and we shared that 119 people each week, that's two thirds the size of a Boeing 737. And if that kind of crash was going on in aviation uh, on a weekly basis, Congress would do something. So we gotta have Congress start talking about the importance of taking care of our youth because 119 people are dying by suicide each week. And we gotta find a way to put together the right training, awareness, and education around that. And one of the things I love about the work that Providence Work to Be Well did is they shared with us some of the things that are going on with the people of color. You can see on here that uh, indigenous people are dying at three times the rate. Uh, black and Hispanic youth at two times the rate. You can see that black youth are 20% more likely. And unfortunately, as you look at all this, as we're trying to seek care, only, I mean, there are only like 14% of therapists that are not white. 86% are white. So we have to have culturally competent care. So one of the things that Dr. Gil Keshrabara did with Providence work to do on the defensive line is they helped us put together uh, a workshop that talked about the pieces of unconscious implicit bias, that talked about microaggressions, that talked about ACEs, and how leaders or young people can identify those signs uh, and help walk through and work through those students who are at risk. So I think the next slide talks about uh, a little bit about what we're all about as a defensive line. And we're all about reducing deaths. We're all about increasing connections uh, through mental health services like Providence and Work to Be Well, broadening support by going into schools with uh, and talking about BIPOC mental health and then providing best practices. Uh, and the next slide I think shows you through, you know, what, what our difference is. We are focusing on people of color. Because right now the research and the and the attention has not been against us, been, been supporting us. So we got to find a way to be vulnerable, actionable, and stay connected with organizations like Work to Be Well, Providence, the Defensive Line to go in these schools and talk about the next piece, the next slide, which shows you what we're trying to do, do which is identify the problem. Talk about, like Martha mentioned, the language that exists there. 
We have a discussion-based uh, approach with these leaders of young people about what they do when the students is not in a safe environment. We clarify the roles that these leaders play in students who are at risk and what they need to be doing. And at the end of each workshop, with the help of Providence Work to Be Well, the defensive line and the work that Ray and Martha have done on this action plan, they walk away with what the person needs to do, when they need to do it, what they need to say, how they need to work it. And those elements are going to help reduce suicide. It's going to help increase the support they need, whether it's therapy, journaling, whether it's getting, you know, uh, uh, an action plan for that individual to get the help they need. So that is going to make a difference. And it's one of the only workshops that's happening in the U.S. right now in talking about unconscious bias. And the next slide, and I'll shut up, just sort of, you know, talks through how we do it. We ask these leaders, young people, that make sure the kids are don't ignore your gut. I mean, if a teacher sees, you know, somebody at risk and that, that, that they're talking about, you know, some of the signs that exist, you know, you know, not feeling like they're worth, worthy of being on this earth, being a burden to other people. You got, we got to listen for these signs. Then they got to interact with that student so they understand that they are valuable. And then they name the concern, the evidence concern, and then under the supportive environment, we walk through those elements of unconscious implicit bias, microaggressions, and they understand how to come to, help that student come to class as a whole person, and that they don't feel like they're being disadvantaged because of their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, you know, where they come from. So because of the work of Providence Work to Be Well on the defensive line, we're able to work with these leaders, young people, and we're seeing huge increases in comfort level of people talking to kids who are at risk. We're, walk, we're having people walk away with 100% of the walk away with an action plan of what to do in crisis, and they know how to work with their school to make sure that these, these students are taken care of. So particular students of color, where right now we have not been paying much attention to them. And by reaching educators and coaches, we're uh, reaching people who may spend the most consistent time with a young person, a, a middle school person, a high school person, and, or even a college student of, of anyone in their life at that time. So um, it's, it's really important to us that the people who see them consistently are um, aware of everything that they need to do yes. in a crisis situation. Wow. I mean, I just want to applaud you both for all the work that you have done and and anyone who's collaborated with you on this on this amazing journey to, you know, destigmatizing mental health in BIPOC communities and really, you know, putting forward resources that can support individuals who are part of our communities that are struggling with their mental health. So seriously, I applaud you both for all the work that you've done. And now I'm honored to get to ask you questions about your work. So my first question is, what are some important ways the defensive line believes adults can support the mental health of young Black, Indigenous, Asian, Hispanic, and other youth of color? Well, by by reaching them, um, by the time that they get to spend with them, they may uh, be able to learn that not all uh, calls for help, not all concerns and crises look the same. And the other key piece is talking about it. I think we mentioned this a little bit earlier. Just having the conversation about mental health, talking about your feelings, talking about where you're at today, that moment, being authentic in the conversation, peeling the onion back and just making sure that there's a dialogue on, you know, 
Are you feeling anxious? Are you feeling nervous? Are you feeling like you're not worthy of being here today? I mean, those kind of conversations and then making sure that we get the resources out that are available in each city, each state, each county, because there are a lot of great resources between Work to Be Well, Providence, the defensive line, uh, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, NAMI, Mental Health America. There's so many great BIPOC resources. I mean, Mental Health America does a great job, along with uh, Work to Be Well, on creating a BIPOC mental health toolkit, making sure that people know that's available, and not only having that available in schools and in gyms, but in churches, having discussions amongst our clergy about it's not just prayed away, it's prayer, it's therapy, it's exercise, it's the whole thing, it's whole health. And having that discussion is not either or, it's both. And so that's really a key part. And that's one reason why we're excited also to work with Providence Work to Be Well to get this into churches so that the clergy can help us have that discussion uh, and help destigmatize. The fact that you know mental health does impact the black community or the community of color and that we have to talk about it dr harper can you give us an example of how providence is promoting the importance of mental health in minority communities yeah, absolutely. Well, Providence is definitely connected with um, Work to Be Well with you all. Um, so we always are promoting your resources. I'm constantly promoting your resources in my talks when I go around to our different caregivers in the region. I'm just sharing with them that the, it, the access is there. And so they should be either utilizing it themselves or passing it along to friends and families or um, even their if they have children, their children's schools, making sure that everyone knows about that resource. Um, also, the Providence, Oregon region, we have a wonderful chief diversity officer, um, Anthony Harrington, who's overseeing our diversity, equity, inclusion office, and they're doing lots of great work with our caregivers or our employees um, around making sure folks feel included and that they belong, um, and that they're really attending to concerns about um, folks are having around diversity, equity, inclusion related issues that are maybe coming up for them um, at work. And so if we're helping to improve people's work life, um, it turn that should help improve the rest of their life, right? Knowing that work is such a significant part of people's lives, um, adults' lives specifically. Um, and lastly, I'd say with my role, I think that's a huge part of what Providence is doing to help support um, mental health for, especially for communities of color, our employees of color, is just having kind of access to a person who is a licensed psychologist that you can connect with, you know, really easily, really quickly. And we also have lots of other resources, I think, just from a system-wide Providence has, but I think it's really wonderful to have myself and my partner in my role where you have someone who probably lives in your area or in your region and we can kind of get on a call quickly and just talk through what you're needing, what you're looking for, and let me kind of help them get connected. And so I think that breaks down some of that stigma even, um, especially for our uh, our caregivers of color, especially, you know, as myself as a caregiver of color, I think that just that mirroring also helps to be able to say, hey, okay, at least there's someone who maybe even looks like me or ha has some similarity to me in some way that I maybe can feel comfortable connecting with and sharing what, what I'm looking for and then actually getting connected to help. So um, just like our partners with the Defensive Line, which I really love what they're doing around the actionable piece, people leaving with an action plan, that's a huge part of what my role is as well, is making sure folks leave with an action plan they feel like they can put into place. So those are just a few things we've been doing. And I agree. I feel like 
what's been brought up a lot is um, trying to solve the mental health crisis. I feel like we both, we all unanimously agree that this is something that should be defeated in um, minority communities today. And um, as Chris was saying, one of, the most, one of the biggest ways to solve this was through resources, making sure resources are there. Um, in these communities. So I wanted to ask everyone, what are some specific resources that you would like to highlight today since we have the, the chance to within your, your organization? And I also wanted to add, how do you see that implemented in schools and the community itself? I mean, <clears throat> I'd like to kick it off because Kiana, that is such a wonderful question. Um, and I have to you know, spotlight a resource that I've had the opportunity to volunteer for. It's called Teen Line. It is a uh, national um, and actually global. We do, I think we take communications out around the globe. It is a teen to tier, um, teen to teen crisis hotline. So it's a peer hotline. Uh, teens contact for a multitude of different reasons and teens respond and support individuals who are in need. And we are specifically trained to help individuals of color deal with situations that they um, deal with in their lives and and to you know really deal with the racial trauma that they may have you know experienced throughout their life and honestly I do want to uh, spotlight a few others um, there is the Asian Mental Health Collective on Instagram and it's a page dedicated to supporting um, Asian mental health if you go to blackgirlsmile.org they have a list of black mental health resources um, there is anti Asian violence resources on anti Asian violence resources C-A-R-R-D dot co um, with a forward slash. Um, there are resources for Spanish Spanish speaking individuals on mental health um, America national.org. And there are so many other resources. There's even a guide to being a good ally on women for of color for progress.org. So there is so many resources available for individuals struggling with mental health because of you know, the intersections between race and mental health. And there are also resources for people who want to support those individuals. There are resources for allies. And so I hope that everyone listening, you know, if you're struggling with mental health or you know someone who's struggling with mental health because of the intersectionality of race and mental health, please go ahead and access the resources that are available for you online. They're there for you and to support you. And, and I think that that is one great thing about the internet is that we are instantly connected to billions of resources that can help and support anyone who's in need. I can speak as far as resources for me. Um, so I'm primarily working right now, again, with employees of Providence. So if there are any Providence employees who are watching, um, especially if you're in the Oregon region, just one of the fastest ways to learn more about what your benefits are, your resources are, if you go to the Providence Oregon SharePoint page, just the homepage, and there's a big button on the top list there that says caregiver support. And if you click on that, there's tons of different resources there. Um, you could always just contact me directly as well, and I can walk you through them specifically, but um, mental health resources, financial resources, um, even if you're looking for like childcare, respite care, like in an immediate situation, um, just all types of things are, are really listed there. So I really, I like to plug that because it's kind of a hub where you can find a lot of things in one place. We provide our, our D-lines um, for crisis intervention workshop to schools for free. Um, and certainly want that to be aware, people to be aware of that. Um, but I also uh, really would encourage people to follow 
some of the positive um, Instagram sites, like you mentioned, Dominic, um, where, and clean up your social media a little bit. So where can you get some positive feedback when you wake up and look at your phone instead of having something that brings you down? And then the only thing I would add is there are a couple of really uh, phenomenal sites I've been following recently, uh, like the Akuma Project, uh, the Hurdle Report with Dr. Kevin uh, uh, Kevin Bedner, uh, as well as Black Matters, uh, Black Mental Matters, which is a podcast that exists. There's some really good tools there. Uh, and then uh, I, I love Black Girls uh, Smile, Black Men Therapy, uh, and then um, I think Jed and Steve, Jet's, Jet Fund and Steve Fund do excellent work as well. And uh, obviously, as Dr. Harper mentioned, Providence Work to Be Well has some great BIPOC tools and, and you can visit any of the deep, as Martha mentioned, some of the positive social media elements. Uh, the defensive line is on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, as well as Instagram. And I just wanted to add really quickly that you can also follow Work to Be Well in the Providence Health System on Instagram as well. I'm just adding on, um, I think one of the most strongest resources that I possibly can give, um, speaking as someone who's from Baltimore and Maryland, is the education system. Um, I feel like one of the things that I, I've learned being a mental health advocate in my community is that the the education system in Maryland is possibly one of the biggest mental health um, hub um, as much as possible, especially for individuals who have challenges with their parents when addressing mental health. Um, recently, a, a bill was passed in Maryland where a kid can be 13 and consent to mental health treatment in, in Maryland, which is quite impressive because now they don't need parents to be a barrier for them and um, and their mental health. So one thing that I would say is if you can't access these resources, ask someone you can ask someone you can trust in your school. Um, they will take they will connect you to somewhere, someplace, somehow, some way. And we also ignore those small little resources that we have around us and tend to look for the big, more structured one, but simply talking to a teacher is a resource. And I think just making sure that you know of what's in your school, what's in your, what, your, whatever place of learning is also a great resource, resource as well. Knowing the resources around you, like Kiana was saying, in your school and just in your community in general are just, that's really important to seek out and if you need help. Uh, pe people are resources and you can always ask someone you trust for help and just reach out when you need it. I know one um, resource that I can share is the online mswprograms.com. It has uh, 55 mental health resources for people of color and it's separated by a table of contents and it's just a big list. Um, I have definitely checked that out a few times and given that link to some other people so just yeah talk to people um, use whatever resources you can if you're struggling and reach out for help because no one should have to struggle alone. Uh, one thing I'd add, I'd add Ash is uh, the new 988 
Uh, I know uh, it's not specific to BIPOC, but uh, that is a great tool to, for us to have now so that you have mental health experts versus the police, you know, trying to, take, to, try to attend to some of our relatives or loved ones or people of color. Uh, and one of the things we learned uh, through the whole process of these 988-741-741 numbers is that you don't have to be the person at risk. You could, you could call there and get support and information of how to have a conversation. Uh, so they, they can walk you through that. And then also AFSP has some great uh, uh, tools on like how to have a real conversation, talk, save lives, uh, and those kind of things. But the 988 is almost less than two weeks old, and, but it's a new great resource we need to make sure everyone knows about. Yes, that is definitely a great resource. 988 really needs to be pushed out and shared more so that a lot a lot more people know about it. Um, to kind of wrap things up, I want to ask one last question. How can we all work together as organizations to like reduce the negative stigma around mental health and suicide? Simply keep talking. I mean, doing this, like talking in a, in a positive light, um, not waiting till there's a crisis uh, that we need to talk, but talk in front of what's happening to avoid those crises. Yeah, I, I really believe it's talking about it constantly, proactively, positively, uh, change the narrative of uh, mental wellness, not mental illness. Uh, it's having strong mental hygiene, talking about self-care, self-love, loving yourself, taking care of yourself so we can take care of others, so we can connect together uh, as a community so that we can work together and share what we need. And then leverage the excellent resources of places like Providence, Work to Be Well, the defensive line, AFSP. I mean, those, just and then make sure that we're addressing your needs. Uh, and I think for we've gone too long of not making sure we address needs of people of color. So let's double down and make sure that we're addressing the research, the care, the prevention, the postvention, you know, all the tools, make sure that they're culturally competent and relevant within, within audience like this, but also in the schools, the universities, and the churches. I, I think organizations themselves, if they're wanting to do more work around things, organizations have to go to where people are and not wait for people to come to them. Um, I mean, Providence is a healthcare system, right? And so we treat sick people, right? And so we are expecting, we're getting people who are accessing care. We sometimes get people who are not volunteering that they really want to be engaged for different reasons, but more often than not, we're getting people who are wanting to come and be engaged when really we have to go out and meet people. And so I think Providence um, has to continue to not only do some of this work, but continue to get out into the communities, be involved in, um, you know, health fairs, be involved in opportunities just to give information, um, just to kind of get the word out there. And so um, as the Thomases are talking about, talking about things, it's really about normalizing that conversation, right? The more that it's just around, the more that you see it there, the more that people are talking about it, it just becomes more typical, more normal. And so it makes it more likely that people then will actually come in and access care. So I would say getting out of our four walls wherever we are and connecting um, would really probably help with that stigma piece too. So similar to what Dr. Harper said, seeing that the, the resources that are there 
we, as we discussed, we have so many resources that we have as a collective. And this is just, what, six of us? So imagine just how much other people have, but really seeing that the, the resources that are there is implemented and activated in the community itself. You know, a lot of the times when I see a bunch of mental health resources, I'm just like, where is it? Like, where is it in my school? Where is it in my community? And it's like, I'm in Baltimore. Like, you know, if it's not here, it's not anywhere. So just seeing that what we produce is brought into the specific communities that we could cater to and making sure that everyone has a chance and an easy, like an easy way to access it as well. And I mean, I just have to add on to what all of you have been saying, because seriously, I, I couldn't have put it better myself, but I just, I want to say that, you know, we're asking the question, how do we reduce the stigma? How do we combat the stigma? And it's so important to understand, well, what, what feeds the stigma? Why is the stigma still alive? And that is a lack of understanding and a lack of awareness and confusion. Because if you don't understand something, you are more likely to shun that, that thing that you don't understand. If you, if you don't understand, if you are not willing to understand something, you are more likely to sort of distance yourself from that thing. And, and that's just a normal human reaction. We don't like the things we don't understand. We, um, we have a fear of the unknown. And so I think it's so important that we all continue. And as we have been, you know, making sure that we are stressing that we need to be aware of what mental health is and the challenges of mental health and the individuals who are dealing with mental health at higher dealing with mental health struggles at higher rates than others. And I think that the, the best way to start is to mandate mental health curriculum in schools, because that's where we, that's where we go to learn. We, we learn math and science. We learn uh, history. We learn English. Why shouldn't we learn how to take care of ourselves and others? I think that that, that is the perfect environment to do so because stigma thrives in an environment where there is a lack of understanding. And so it's our job as mental health organizations, as organizations, you know, working for BIPOC individuals to, to, to make sure that there is understanding about mental health in any community. And so that this stigma will no longer be allowed to, to perpetrate. It will no longer be allowed to survive. And so I think that you know, working for education, working towards awareness, working towards a, a better understanding of mental health is seriously the best step that we can take to really combating the stigma. And now I'd like to transition into our outro. So I'd like to give some thank yous. First of all, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Martha, Dr. Lauren, for joining us today and to everyone for listening and sending your questions. If you are looking for help or resources for mental health and wellness, please visit providence.org. And for parents, teachers, and students, check out work to, that's the number two, bewell.org. And of course, join the defensive line at thedefensiveline.org. Last but not least, please keep in mind that the new 988 three-digit number for mental health and suicide crisis has gone live nationwide. 988 will connect people to trained crisis counselors that provide de-escalation and mental health intervention services by phone and ideally coordinate connections to additional services and help in their community. If you or a loved one is experiencing a crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK, which is 8255, or visit 988lifeline.org. All the links mentioned are accessible in the chat. Thanks again and see you next time.
Thank you all.